0: Well, welcome back, folks. There's a breaking story by John Solomon, JohnSolomonReports.com. Hunter Biden's Ukraine gas firm pressed Obama administration to end corruption allegations, memo show. Hmm. Hunter Biden and his <laughs> Ukrainian gas firm colleagues had multiple contacts with the Obama State Department during the 2016 election cycle, including one. Just a month before, Vice President Biden forced Ukraine to fire the prosecutor investigating his son's company for corruption. Newly released memo show. Wow! This isn't leading any of the news programs tonight, Mr. Producer. During that February 2016 contact, a U.S. representative for Burisma Holdings sought a meeting with Undersecretary of State Catherine Novelli in the Obama administration to discuss ending the corruption allegations against the Ukrainian firm, where Hunter Biden worked as a board member, according to memos obtained under a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit. Solomon says, I filed the suit this summer, with the help of the public interest law from the Southeastern Legal Foundation. Just three weeks before Burisma's overture to the State Department, Ukrainian authorities raided the home of the oligarch who owned the gas firm and employed Hunter Biden a signal of the long-running corruption probe escalating in the middle of the U.S. presidential election. Hunter Biden's name, in fact, was specifically invoked by the Burisma representative as a reason the State Department should help, according to a series of email exchanges among U.S. officials trying to arrange the meeting. And the subject line of the memo said simply, Burisma. Quote, per our conversation, Karen... Tramontano a Blue Star Strategies requested a meeting to discuss with U.S. Novelli, USG remarks alleging Burisma, Ukrainian energy company, of corruption between state officials. She noted that two high-profile U.S. citizens are affiliated with the company, including Hunter Biden as a board member. Tramontano would like to talk with U.S. Novelli. Remember, she is the uh, Undersecretary of State under Obama. About getting a better understanding of how the U.S. came to the determination that the company is corrupt, the email said. According to Tramontano, there's no evidence of corruption, has been no hearing or process, and evidence to the contrary has not been considered. Now, at the time, Novelli was the most senior official overseeing international energy issues for the State Department. So another Obama official. The undersecretary position, of which there are several, is the third highest ranking job at state behind the secretary and deputy secretary. And Tromantano was a lawyer working for Blue Star Strategies, a Washington firm that was hired by by Risma to help end a long-running corruption investigation against the gas firm in Ukraine. All right, so to recap, there's a lobbying firm in Washington trying to get the State Department to end or to pressure to end an investigation of Burisma. This would be the Obama State Department. Tramontano and another Blue Star official, Sally Painter, both alumni of Bill Clinton's administration, worked with New York-based criminal defense attorney John Beretta to settle the Ukraine cases in late 2016 and 17. Burisma Holdings records... Obtained by Ukrainian prosecutors state the gas firm made a $60,000 payment to Blue Star in November 2015. Now, the records show Tramonto was scheduled to meet Novelli on March 1, 2016. That is, this firm, this Clinton-associated firm, was scheduled to meet Novelli, the number three at the State Department under Obama, to try and push off this Burisma investigation. In March 1, 2016. Notice all the parties and the players here. The records don't show whether the meeting actually took place. The FOIA lawsuit is ongoing and state officials are slated to produce additional records in the months ahead. But the records do indicate that Hunter Biden's fellow American board member at Burisma, Devin Archer, talked with Secretary of State, uh, excuse me, stepson, I believe, or whose stepson worked with Secretary of State John Kerry. In addition to serving on the Burisma board, Archer and Hunter Biden were partners at an American firm known as Rosemont Seneca. I know this gets confusing. But the point of all this is going back really to 2014 or so. This firm with ties to Kerry and to Clinton. Two firms. Worked to pressure the Obama Justice Department ultimately to chase off the Burisma investigation, of which Hunter Biden, the son of Joe Biden, of course, was a board member. So this is important to understand. The gas firm hired Hunter Biden and Archer as board members for Burisma Holdings in September 2014, around the time British officials opened corruption investigations, into the gas firm for actions dating to 2010 before Hunter Biden and Archer joined the firm. Ukraine officials opened their own corruption probe in August 2014. Now there's a lot here, ladies and gentlemen. That's the point. There's a great deal here. And so when Anderson Cooper begins the Democrat debate questioning by saying to Joe Biden, look, we understand. We understand that Hunter Biden didn't do anything wrong and it wasn't shown that he did anything wrong. That's wrong. Because there's never been a serious investigation of this matter. Whether it involves Ukraine or the United States. Which is one of the things that's been quite annoying, as you know, to the President of the United States. And I don't know how these guys get away with it. I don't know how these guys get away with it. But for the media, of course. But for the media. Now, there's a lot more here. On Hunter Biden and the Bidens. But the so-called, what I call the Democrat Party media won't expend any resources to, to investigate it. The New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, MSNBC, NBC, ABC, CBS, they don't want to expend resources to look into this. Why is that? Well, we know why it is. They're pushing the narrative. They're pushing the narrative. Just like they're pushing another narrative. And what's that? That the president is obstructing justice. Now, how's the president obstructing justice, a.k.a. obstructing Congress? Well, you see, ladies and gentlemen, Adam Schiff keeps subpoenaing people and demanding their appearance before his committee, and demanding the provision of documents. The problem is, the people he's subpoenaing, most of them have been in the inner circle, or are in the inner circle, the President's advisors. Congress doesn't have the power to undermine separation of powers, and so Schiff is setting up an obstruction channel for his impeachment charges that he will turn over to the House Judiciary Committee. That the President of the United States wasn't cooperative in what is a bogus, rancid, so-called impeachment inquiry. But they're making demands, again, for witnesses that they don't have a right to. The other thing that's happening is there's so many district court judges who were appointed by Obama and circuit court judges who were appointed by Obama. Some of these cases are winding up in front of these Obama judges. We had a case like that in Washington, D.C. the other day. And then it was appealed to a circuit court that the panel of three appellate judges was made up of all Obama appointees. You heard about the Second Circuit Court of Appeals today. I'll get into that more deeply later in the program. They ruled that the president must turn over his tax returns to the district attorney of Manhattan, who's conducting a bogus criminal investigation of the president's tax returns. And that goes to the Second Circuit, which is a very weak circuit from a constitutionalist perspective. And so this is becoming increasingly more difficult. Now, the, the way to fix this, of course, is for the Senate, when the charges reach the Senate, is to summarily dismiss them, and it's for us, the voters, to change the House, to strengthen the Senate, and to ensure the President's re-election. Short of that, there's not a hell of a lot we can do. I'll be right back. Liberty and learning. In a healthy democracy, these two things are mutually supportive. In America today, however, that bond is broken. To help repair the breach, Hillsdale College has launched the Van Andel Graduate School of Government in the nation's capital. And unlike other graduate programs, Hillsdale teaches politics as a human activity oriented toward justice. Hillsdale College, pursuing truth and defending liberty since 1844. Learn more at levinfrahillsdale.com. That's L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. Let me give you a little historical background here when it comes to subpoenas and the conflicts between Congress and the executive branch. I don't believe we've ever had a situation where a committee of Congress, whether acting for the full House or Senate or on its own, has unleashed scores and scores of subpoenas against a president and or a White House generally. I cannot think of another time when that has happened in American history. Not another time, period. On occasion, yes. Number two, I cannot think of another time in American history when subpoenas are being used as a basis to build an impeachment case over the fact that the White House defends itself against these almost infinite number of subpoenas that continue to be thrown at it. And the fact of a White House defending the power of the presidency in Article II in an area that at times is ambiguous or nebulous, is treated as an impeachable offense or obstruction. Number three, typically throughout our history, the way these matters were handled wasn't by courts. It was by compromise, a negotiation between the executive branch and Congress. But when you have a situation where you have a Gerald Nadler or an Adam Schiff and others who are chairman of these committees, previously Elijah Cummings, the late Elijah Cummings and others, Elliot Engel. Which has a, a, a plot by the Speaker and the Democrats and the majority in the House are abusing the subpoena power. And they know that these cases, many of them will wind up in front of Obama judges, whether at the district court or appellate court level, who will rule in favor of them. It is so thoroughly destructive of our government, of our constitutional order. And so when they're subpoenaing individuals like the former counsel to the president, or a deputy counsel to the president, or a national security adv- advisor to the president, or a former national security advisor to a president, making it virtually impossible for any president to conduct business, Well, they're setting up a constitutional confrontation without any interest whatsoever in negotiating a compromise of any kind. and then the matter goes before a court as it did last Friday, circuit court as it as it apparently did today with the president's taxes the purpose of which are to destroy the president and weaken the presidency. Because that's what's going to happen. The, do you know that the Supreme Court, <coughs> excuse me, has never addressed executive privilege in the face of a congressional demand for information? For information. And the court has in the uh, Nixon versus uh, United States case, what was it, 1974 or so? Yeah set out different uh, tests, but the court just made them up. There needs to be a valid need for protection of communication between high government officials who advise the president so he can perform his duties and they theirs. It's not an absolute claim. There are certain primary constitutional duties. And uh, that there needs to be somewhat of a balance test. A commitment to the rule of law, whatever that is, theoretically, as well as a commitment to separation of powers. Basically, the Supreme Court has not given much guidance beyond those fairly broad parameters. The Supreme Court more recently, involving a former Cabinet Secretary Espy, and uh, in a case, in, I believe it was 1997, and involving Judicial Watch and the Department of Justice, and related to grand jury subpoena for White House documents. But that court sided mostly with the White House against Judicial Watch, mostly against the White House. These district court decisions don't really have precedential value. It's the circuit court decisions that do unless the Supreme Court steps in and so forth. Harold Leventhal was a judge and uh, he, uh, he ruled in one of these cases. I think it was in the 1970s. And he said, the framers relied, we believe, on the expectation that where conflicts in scope of authority arose between the coordinate branches, a spirit of dynamic compromise would promote resolution of the dispute in the manner most likely to result in efficient and effective functioning of our governmental system. Under this view, the coordinate branches do not exist in an exclusively adversary relationship to one another when a conflict in authority arises. Rather, Each branch should take cognizance of an implicit constitutional mandate to seek optimal accommodation through a realistic evaluation of the needs of the conflicting branches in the particular fact situation. This aspect of our constitutional scheme avoids the mischief of polarization of disputes. It's really a very good article about this by Steve Vladek at SCOTUS SCOTUS blog. But as you can see, Adam Schiff is burning all that down. These subpoenas have as their purpose not really the pursuit, the legitimate pursuit of witnesses for testimony, but he's subpoenaing witnesses who he knows will not be provided by the executive branch, where he knows no compromise or accommodation can be met, and so he just chalks it up to an impeachment charge. I'll be right back. Welcome to Hillsdale.
1: Mark Levin, tough as hell.
2: That's why I like Mark Levin. And I'm not sure a lot of people like him. He's tough as hell. But I like him. I love him. Call in now.
1: 877-381-3811.
0: Over the course of years, the Democrats have issued subpoenas on Trump-Russia relations including preparations for meetings with Vladimir Putin. This is from Cato. Trump's business dealings with foreign governments, Trump's tax returns, non-disclosure payments, firing of James Comey, firing of U.S. attorneys, discussion of classified information at Mar-a-Lago, alleged, the travel ban, family separation policy, transgender ban for the military, And more. And more. And so you can see this is really a concerted campaign, a strategy to follow one of these courses. You see, they're, they're they're going after Ukraine, of course, that issue which is so bogus, and now they're going to build this. I've talked to you about this about two weeks ago. This second course, which is the subpoena course. And I'm just making you aware of it. I'm just making you aware of it because of how utterly unconscionable and irresponsible this is. We have what is a small majority of Democrats in the House now purposely pushing separation of powers to the brink. And the more judges that get involved and the more courts that get involved, the more they're going to politicize themselves. What they should do is stay the hell out of it whether it's taxes or anything else and say that the political bodies have the tools to resolve this themselves, either through negotiation and accommodation or they can do it through impeachment or however they want to do it. And the president can, of course, go to the American people and explain to them what's going on. But because subpoenas are being used for political purposes and subpoenas are being used not so much for the gathering of information, that's the patina they dress this up with. They're using subpoenas as a tool, as an ambiguous area to pile on and extend their list of so-called impeachable offenses. That's what's going on. And the courts would be quite mistaken to get involved. And the Supreme Court in the tax case should overrule the Second Circuit without even getting into the substance. Should overrule the Second Circuit and say, uh, hello, let the political branches resolve this. Let us not put our finger on the scales of justice one way or the other. That's what they should do. Because you can dress up any subpoena, any claim for information as part of a criminal investigation or a congressional investigation or impeachment or whatever. These are the president's personal tax returns that have been provided under penalty of perjury, prepared by others, to the Internal Revenue Service, if the Internal Revenue Service sees that there's something wrong with them, the Internal Revenue Service is free to act, but we cannot have members of Congress conducting themselves this way, and we certainly cannot have federal judges conducting themselves this way. Because if they are, then here, here's my view. My view is that the tax records of every Supreme Court justice for the last eight years should be released the tax returns for those appellate judges on the Second Circuit that just ruled the way they did today, they should be released. Eight years' worth. Eight years' worth should be released. Why just the President? Why shouldn't all these officials, as a matter of fact, have to release eight years of their tax returns? Because Cy Vance Jr., a hardcore left-wing Democrat goon, thinks that, Only the president should. Whatever happened to a bill of attainder, by the way? When you have states like California, New York, passing bills, directly or indirectly, insisting that the president of the United States releases tax returns. That is a bill that's aimed at one citizen. That used to be unconstitutional, at least that's what I thought. But apparently not. Now, you won't get this kind of discussion in the media. Because it's a little too deep, and they're a little too quick. And of course, they're highly partisan. But this is a problem that's being pushed and forced by the left, the Democrats in the House of Representatives. I thought hard about whether to even raise this issue, if I'd lose most of you. But I think it's important that you understand, because at some point they will issue a charge or multiple charges of impeachment... Uh, in the House, based on the strategy of unloading all these subpoenas on the President, knowing full well that he, look, the President, in good conscience, even if he wanted to abide by every one of these subpoenas, he cannot. Without damaging the office of the presidency, he can't do it. Without weakening separation of powers. You know, what's interesting and what's never discussed is Congress. Congress can act outside of its constitutional boundaries. Thomas Jefferson talked about it often. See, he said you could have legislative tyranny. That's what we have right now, legislative tyranny. It's interesting that also the uh, the House released the transcripts, uh, supposedly, of Yovanovitch and McKinley, two bureaucrats at the State Department, two Obama holdovers, that they would issue those. There's a piece here, I was going to get to it later, but let's stay on this. About the whistleblower that came out, uh, I guess, Saturday. CBS News. Whistleblower willing to answer Republicans' questions, an impeachment probe lawyer says. And then there's this one, same day. Wall Street Journal. Trump allies ramp up efforts to unmask whistleblower. The so-called whistleblower's lawyers, like this Mark Zade and others, very tight with the media. Very tight with the media, very tight spinning stories, attacking uh, people who are really raising questions about them as well as their client. By the way, they haven't denied a word of the Real Clear Investigations piece by Paul Sperry that we discussed last week, identifying, apparently, reportedly, the so-called whistleblower. And as I posted that morning, and others picked up that night or that afternoon, now we know why, if the story's accurate, and I believe it is, they don't want the whistleblower to testify, because the whistleblower is a left-wing Democrat, that's why. And the whistleblower would be asked about other leaks. And so it's whistleblower willing to answer Republicans' questions, in impeachment probe lawyer says, a lawyer for the whistleblower who reported concerns about the president's dealings with Ukraine Told CBS News he offered to have Republicans on the House Intel Committee submit questions to his client directly without having to go through the committee's Democratic majority. Submit questions in writing, you see, to the whistleblower's legal team. To the legal team. Now, why would the Republicans agree to that? It's not like he's the president. He's a so-called whistleblower. And that troubles me enormously. All the years I served, eight years in the Reagan administration, I never saw a whistleblower like this. Somebody with second-hand information who can unilaterally identify himself as a whistleblower, incorrectly check a box. I'll say incorrectly could be dishonestly, too. Saying he had first-hand information. I've never seen a whistleblower like this. Quite frankly, we know there have been shenanigans involved there in the changing of the form at one point. There's a debate over when, but that question could be asked, too. There's a lot of questions for this so-called whistleblower, and there's no reason that he should be above the law. You know, folks, we have open court proceedings for a reason. So the public knows what's taking place. And so the public can be check a check on the parties, as well as the authority, the courts. And in this case, Congress. In the end, it's always about us, not about them. Not about the so-called whistleblower, the whistleblower's legal team, the Democrat party, impeachment. It's about us. All of this exists for you and me, us, we the people. And so somebody comes forward... And triggers this effort to remove a sitting president of the United States. Questions can be asked of the individual. Not so the person has time to sit there and lawyer up and figure out answers. and so. No. With the click lights on and the mic open. On the spot. Just like if it were a trial. And can be asked questions. With whom did you share the classified information about the president's phone call? That's a question. How did you come by your lawyers? That's a good question. With whom did you meet on Mr. Schiff's staff? When did you meet with them? How often did you meet with them? Did you communicate with them by texts, by emails, by phone, in person? Do we have access to that information? Many more questions can be asked. Did you ever talk to any reporter? Any news organization? Which ones, if so? When did you do that? Uh, and a lot of questions about the complaint. Who wrote the complaint? Who assists you with the complaint? When did you provide that complaint to the Intelligence Committee or an individual on the Intelligence Committee staff or an individual on the Intelligence Committee? With whom did you work? Did you work with anybody who's currently at the National Security Council? Anybody currently at the CIA? Anybody else in Congress on another committee? Who actually knows your identity on this committee? Anybody? Have you ever had a discussion with Nancy Pelosi? Steny Hoyer? Any other Democrat in Congress? Any Republican? Now, I could go on and on and on. Why should the Republicans have to put this in writing? Why can't they have this guy in front of them and ask the questions? Because they want to protect the individual, they say. Ladies and gentlemen, a lot of people have to go to court, criminal and civil court, open court, and they're not protected. And I dare say that the President of the United States and his family have had more death threats than this so-called whistleblower. I don't even know how this whistleblower could have a death threat since, at least theoretically, we're not even supposed to know who he is. People sending death threats to their lawyers, maybe? I don't know. (laughs) But all the top talk show hosts get death threats, I can tell you this. And many of the top TV hosts get death threats. Uh, when I interviewed for Life, Liberty, and Levin, Congressman Mo Brooks and Congressman Matt Gates, both of them told me they have received multiple death threats. Congressman Gates even told me he had to find another residence. We didn't have time to talk about it, but both of them wanted to talk about it. The media don't care about that. The media don't care about that. But even Blasey Ford had to come forward at some point. Your accuser has to come forward at some point. But I have another question for the so-called whistleblower. Who suggested to you to use the Whistleblower Act as a means to filing a complaint? Because you see, that, that's additional lawyering. Guidance, you might say, that was given to this guy in order to make it much more difficult to get information about him and his background, his identity, obviously. And for the Democrats to keep running around saying, hey, look, look, Trump is obstructing justice because he wants to know the identity of the whistleblower. And then we have this article in the Wall Street Journal. Trump allies ramp up efforts to unmask whistleblower. Some GOP lawmakers and conservative media outlets have sought to reveal a person they believe is behind the complaint, even as other witnesses have supported its central findings. Well, what does that have to do with anything? Dustin Voles? And what do you mean has supported the whistleblower's central findings? We have the damn transcript of the phone call. There were no whistleblower findings. The whistleblower had the information secondhand. What whistleblower findings? And now we have a former holdover Obama... Ambassador, and she's upset because people were plotting to remove her. Who gives a damn? She should have left after the Obama administration. Then a senior bureaucrat who worked for Pompeo, I don't know why Pompeo would, would keep somebody like this on board, who worked in the Obama administration, and he leaves because he doesn't like what happened to the ambassador. And then we get testimony from people who worked at the White House, who don't like what the president said to the president of Ukraine. Who gives a damn if they like what the president said or not? That's their opinion. As I keep saying, their opinion is irrelevant. Oh, but they're adding up. They're piling on, Mark. Well, zero times zero equals zero. I'll be right back. Mark Levin. So why do we need the whistleblower's testimony? Adam Schiff says we don't need the testimony anymore. We have the phone call. Well, ladies and gentlemen, obviously we don't need the so-called whistleblower to testify about the phone call because he doesn't have any first-hand knowledge about the phone call. We need the whistleblower so-called to testify about Adam Schiff. About Adam Schiff's staff about the former national security advisors on the Obama administration who were held over briefly in the Trump administration, and then Adam Schiff hired them. We need to know about the so-called whistleblowers' conversations with one or both of them and with Schiff. And whether he even had conversations with Schiff, we need to know everybody he spoke to. We need to know if he violated the Espionage Act by sharing classified information that was in that phone call. We need to know if he spoke to former CIA Director Brennan. We have a lot of questions for the so-called whistleblower. A whole damn bunch of them. Having nothing to do with the phone call because he knows nothing of the phone call anymore less than we know. Conversely, why don't we need to hear from bureaucrats and civil servants who once served at the State Department or maybe still do about the phone call? Because they have no first-hand knowledge about the phone call, and their opinions about the phone call are utterly and completely irrelevant. Period. So who cares what they say? Who cares what Lieutenant Colonel Vindman has to say? And more has come out about him, that he's a Democrat hack. Don't get me wrong, he served in the military, has a purple heart. Nonetheless, a Democrat hack who was overheard by another lieutenant colonel since retired, and I've posted these things, who has said on the record with his name, not like a whistleblower, about things he overheard, Min saying to Russian and Ukrainian soldiers years ago in denouncing his own country. Now again, this isn't first-hand information with me, so I can't testify about it, but there it is. A lieutenant colonel retired, whose name is on the record, who I linked to and others have linked to, it's not a conspiracy. It's not gossip. It's not intended to be provocative. That any news organization, any news organization can contact that man and talk to him. He served his country too. He served in combat too. Why not talk to him? No, no, no. You don't understand. And the whistleblower is willing to answer questions in writing. What kind of crap is that? Shifts throwing subpoenas everywhere. We just talked about it at great length, but he will not subpoena the so-called whistleblower to testify. He will not subpoena that so-called whistleblower to testify in public where you and I can see him. (coughs) He won't do it, but he'll throw subpoenas at everyone else, former ambassador to the Ukraine who was dismissed, former advisor to Pompeo and so forth and so on. What of the whistleblower? And under the new rules that were just adopted that the media have lied to you about, the Republicans can't call the whistleblower as a witness either. Unless Adam Schiff agrees to it, and they have to provide a detailed written explanation why they want the whistleblower to testify. Can you imagine Adam Schiff? The more detailed the explanation, the more reason he has to say no. Why? Because Adam Schiff is exactly what I've been saying. He's a material witness. That's why...
1: Hello everybody,
0: Mark Levin here, our number 877-381-3811, 877-381-3811. If, if Donald Trump is impeached, as I fear he will be by this rogue, tyrannical, Democrat-majority house, then the other president should have been impeached as well. This is very complicated for a media-ite, Media Matters, and the Huffington Compost, and Salon, and Slate, and the rest, I understand. Because they're ideologically driven buffoons. And their sites are predictable. But when you look at John Kennedy's conduct with the IRS and the FBI, and used against opponents, Lyndon Johnson using the IRS and the FBI against opponents, They should have been impeached, both of them. They were moving towards impeaching Richard Nixon, who did essentially the same thing when it comes to the IRS allegations as his predecessors did. He learned it from them. And Obama, when the IRS went after the Tea Party and other entities with whom Obama disagreed and the Democrats were trying to destroy. I don't remember impeachment charges being brought against Obama for his use of the IRS. Well, Mark, you can't tie the two together. Um, Excuse me. It's his administration. I don't remember them charging him with obstruction of justice when it came to Benghazi or Fast and Furious. Do you? No. No. No, we don't. And how about Obama's treatment of the media? Trump can say things about the media, but what Obama did to the media was really quite remarkable and tyrannical. And the same with Franklin Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson. They should have been impeached. Trump has done nothing compared to those presidents when it comes to the abuse of power. And this is what drives the left nuts, including the left's phony media. Now we have an ambassador to Ukraine who's forced out, who should have stepped down, but forced out isn't even correct, who was removed. Apparently you're not allowed to remove ambassadors that Obama had appointed, you see. And... um, so I want to go through a couple of these with you. I spent a lot of the first hour talking to you about obstruction, right? Well, here's Adam Schiff at a press conference today on the issue of obstruction. Cut two, Go.
4: Uh, I would also say, and we expect the witnesses who have been subpoenaed to come in this afternoon at White House Instruction, uh, also to be no-shows. This will only further add to the body of evidence uh, on a potential obstruction of Congress uh, charge against the President. I told
0: you last week they were moving in this direction, heavily. I told you the right phrase was obstruction of Congress, not obstruction of justice. When he was saying obstruction of justice... They've corrected themselves. Obviously, they monitor this program. Anyway, go ahead.
4: Uh, Indeed, in the Nixon impeachment, there was an article of impeachment based on the obstruction of Congress that itemized each of the subpoenas that the White House had defied.
0: And yet, in the case of Richard Nixon, there had been a special counsel investigation. Uh, First by Archibald Cox, then by Leon Jaworski, who picked up after Cox who essentially accused Richard Nixon of criminality. Uh, in the case of Bill Clinton, it was even clear his criminality, 11 felonies, as set forth by the Independent Counsel's Office under federal statute at that time, led by Ken Starr. And the Nixon versus United States case involves a rule of law matter. The rule of law related related to whether or not to impeach a president for his abuse of power. And in that sense, abuse of power related to specific conduct, such as uh, covering up a break-in and so forth. Use of the IRS. Trump hasn't done any of that stuff. Hasn't covered up anything. Ukraine got the money. Even if Trump had withheld the money, it's perfectly within his authority to do so, asking them to assist in a criminal investigation that the Attorney General and the U.S. Attorney from Connecticut are involved in, is publicly known and launched some time ago, and of course, raising a question about the Bidens, based on the public record once again, not demanding anything, not tying it to military aid of any way, we have the phone call, we have it. And so he can bring up Nixon impeachment and the obstruction of Congress, itemized each of the subpoenas and so forth. And that's what they're trying to do here. This is what I was talking about last week, and this is what I've been talking about in the first hour. Go ahead.
4: Well, today we have four additional subpoenas to add to the list of a potential charge. So the
0: entire the- purpose here is to create charges, is to create a phony record by a rogue, out of control, tyrannical, Democrat Party that controls the instrumentalities of the House and therefore the instrumentalities of the impeachment process. Not the trial, the impeachment process. So they continue to issue subpoenas that they know will not be honored for separation of powers purposes. And so they'll just keep doing it. And say here we're itemizing the subpoenas that the White House defied to create an obstruction of justice scenario for the 2020 election. That this is a president who doesn't follow the rule, obstruction of Congress, excuse me. This is a president who doesn't follow the rules. This is a president who's obstructing. See, for a lot of our fellow citizens, that's all they need to hear. The president obstructs, obstructs, obstructs. They tried to do that in volume two of the Mueller report, and they failed. They tried to do that during the Nadler hearings, they failed. They tried to do it during the Mueller hearings, they failed. And so now they're creating an obstruction scenario which is just as phony, but they're creating an obstruction scenario. Every time the White House, the executive branch, the president says, no, we're not going to damage the office of the presidency. The president has to have advisors. And no, we're not going to comply. with. And so they are creating this constitutional confrontation where one isn't necessary in the least, particularly over this Ukraine issue, which is a phony issue. Go ahead.
4: United States uh, and his obstruction of our constitutional duties. See,
0: his duties are constitutional, and the president's you see are not. But of course the president's duties are constitutional. He has every much a, a right and authority under Article 2 to protect the office of the presidency. And as I said again earlier, and I've said before, Jefferson is right. You could have a tyrannical legislature, and we do. Just because Congress issues subpoenas, just because a, Clinton, a uh, Obama judge orders it to be complied with, doesn't make it right. Does't make it right? And now you can see Schiff is circling the wagons around this Yovanovitch, an Obama holdover ambassador, like it's such a great national crisis, or constitutional issue or impeachment matter, that she was removed. Who cares? Cut three, go.
4: You will see in Ambassador Yovanovitch's testimony what a dedicated public servant she is. Uh, this is someone who served the country with distinction for decades. It is someone who also is one of the first I see. So
0: when Brett Kavanaugh served the country with distinction for decades, both as White House counsel and then as a federal judge in Washington, D.C., on the D.C. Circuit, I don't remember the people saying, you know, here we have a, uh, someone who served the country with distinction for decades. I didn't hear that. Did you hear that, folks? No, of course you didn't hear that. I didn't hear it when it came to Lieutenant General Michael Flynn. Here we have somebody who served the country with distinction and courage for decades. Did you hear that, ladies and gentlemen? I, I didn't hear that either.
4: Go ahead. To this irregular back channel that the president established with Rudy Giuliani.
0: It's uh, not an irregular back channel. We've talked about this repeatedly. But of course the media will not. Which is virtually every president. Virtually every president has used individuals outside the State Department bureaucracy To speak to heads of state, starting with George Washington, all the way up to this president. Obama did it, Clinton did it, Nixon did it, they all did it. There's nothing irregular about it. A president is in charge of foreign policy, a president is in charge of the executive branch, and that includes the State Department. It includes the State Department. So, it's not an irregular channel, and he's not required the president to uh, continue with an Obama holdover as the head of Ukraine. And by the way, the Obama administration was lousy when it came to Ukraine. They didn't give it the military aid that it requested and needed, Trump did. Go ahead.
4: The damage that it was doing to America's national security uh, and foreign policy didn't do any interests.
0: damage to America's national security and foreign policy interests. Period. The president decides U.S. foreign policy objectives. Listen to this. Go ahead.
4: How it was working at um, in opposition, not in support of U.S. policy objectives.
0: U.S. policy objectives. Are determined by the president of the United States. He's in charge of our foreign policy. He's in charge of the State Department. Not Yovanovitch. Not Yovanovitch. Not the Obama holdovers. The president of the United States
4: is in charge. Kind of idiotic, stupid. Go ahead. Ambassador Yovanovitch had a well-earned reputation as a fighter of corruption, um, and she. Was Have any of
0: you ever heard of Ambassador Yovanovitch as a fighter of corruption? You see this? He's building her up. Go ahead.
4: To get Ukraine to fight corruption. And so what does this irregular back channel sanctioned by the president do? It seeks to remove someone fighting corruption.
0: Ah, so the president can't make a personnel decision in his executive branch. He can't choose his ambassadors. He can't have somebody like Rudy Giuliani uh, communicating on his behalf or surrogates of that sort. Every president in the past has done exactly that. Exactly that. This woman doesn't get to make foreign policy. The president does. He's elected. So who's defying the Constitution? Who's undermining our system of justice now? Our governmental system. It's Schiff. And does this not underscore once and for all that the real problem is the fact that Donald Trump was elected president of the United States? The answer is yes. I'll be right back.
1: Levin.
0: If you're in the market for a new home, I have some good news for you. According to new data, the average monthly mortgage payment has dropped over 6% in the last year. 6% drop, meaning home ownership really is within reach, especially when you call my friends at American Financing. Even if you already own a home, it may be a good time for you to call and see if you can refinance to a lower rate, so that you too can drop your mortgage payment. When you call American Financing, you'll work with a salary-based mortgage consultant. There's no pressure. No upfront or hidden fees either. This is a family-owned and family-run business, and they treat you with respect. And they're trying to help you tailor a loan that works for you. Now, just a custom loan designed around your financial goals. They really are in it for you. I've talked to them. I know them. That's why I endorse them. If you're ready to capitalize on today's very low rates and make lower payments, then make the just 10-minute call. That's all it is. 10-minute call to American Financing, and you'll be glad you did. Call 888-900-1828. 888-900-1828. Write that down. 888-900-1828. Or go online at AmericanFinancing.net. American Financing, NMLS, 182334, www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. There's a few very, very important elections tomorrow, including my Commonwealth of Virginia, where I need every Republican and conservative to get out there and vote. Or well, we're going to lose the, the House of Delegates, we're going to lose the State Senate, and we're going to lose our Second Amendment, we're going to lose our First Amendment, and this governor with his... After birth abortion, they're going to push every radical agenda item they can. So if you're listening to me now, whether you're in your cars or in your homes or in your offices, and if your place of voting is the state of Virginia, the polls open at 6 a.m. and they close at 7 p.m. It is a turnout election. That is, a lot of people don't vote. You need to vote. You need to get on your phone tonight. Make sure your family members vote. Your friends, your colleagues, your neighbors, assuming they're going to vote the right way. I mean, you got George Soros pouring millions into this state over the Commonwealth states' elections. They're trying to take this state. Kentucky. You have a terrific governor in Matt Bevan. President of the United States is there right now campaigning for him. This is serious, serious business. And the radical Democrats want to remove him. Just as they want to take over the state of Virginia. So a few states out there, Mississippi, Louisiana, I believe. Virginia, I know for sure. Kentucky, I know for sure. Big elections. And I don't want to live in a dark blue state here, my fellow Virginians. Many of you call me on WMAL. And you say to me, Mark, what can we do? What can we do? it? You can do it tomorrow. It's a big deal. Let's show the entire country what we're made of and all those who have elections all over the country, you too, show the nation. Let's take a little listen at the president now in Kentucky. Go ahead. Our
2: our history and our heroes, they want to subjugate you and break you to their will, but Kentucky will never be broken. Kentucky can't be broken. You're too strong and you're too smart. in their crazed thirst for power, the Democrats are trying to tear our country apart. First, Democrats engineered the Russia hoax, the most egregious fraud ever foisted upon the American people, the Russian hoax. Then they did the Mueller scam. You remember that, the Mueller scam. Two years, and they said, Nothing. And then Mr. Mueller testified. That was a wonderful day for me. And you remember last week, I don't know Tulsi Gabbard, but Hillary Clinton said that Tulsi Gabbard is a Russian agent. I don't know Jill Stein. She's a greenie, and that's fine. She's a greenie, Jill Stein. But Jill Stein was an agent of Russia also. These people are crazy. Now corrupt politicians, Nancy Pelosi and Adam Schiff, they are corrupt. And Nancy, unlike Kentucky, which is doing great, Nancy ought to stop wasting time Go back to our district in San Francisco. All right,
0: we'll be right back. I think we're going to listen a little bit more to our president. See you in a few minutes. My yeah!
1: Mark Levin, the modern voice of the Founding Fathers. This is the Mark Levin Show. Dial in now at 877-381-3811. You know, computer
0: systems in cars are the new normal, from electronically controlled transmissions to touchscreen displays to dozens of sensors. But all this advanced tech is expensive to fix if and when it breaks. That's why I have CarShield. CarShield has affordable protection plans that can save you thousands for a covered repair, including computers, GPS, electronics and more. CarShield has helped over 1 million customers, so drive with confidence knowing you got coverage from America's number one auto protection provider. Whether you have 5,000 miles or 150,000 miles on your vehicle, it is inevitable something will break. Please protect yourself. Protect your money. Get covered by CarShield today. Call 800-CAR-6000. Mention code Levin. Or visit carshield.com, use code LEVIN, L-E-V-I-N, and you'll save 10% either way. I'm telling you, this is the best. That's carshield.com, code LEVIN, or 800 cars 6000 code LEVIN. A deductible may apply. Now back to the president in Kentucky.
2: And the Democrats have never witnessed anything like it. And they know... They're not going to win in 2020, so let's see what can we do to win. But that's not working too well. You'll see. The American people are fed up with Democrat lies, hoaxes, slander. The Democrats' outrageous conduct has created an angry majority that will vote the do-nothing Democrats the hell out of office soon. Kentucky has a chance to send the radical Democrats a message. You will vote to reject the Democrats' extremism, socialism, and corruption. And you will vote to re-elect Kentucky Governor Matt Bevan, who's done a great job. Matt's a veteran. He's a patriot. He's done it all. He's been a very, very successful business leader. He put his whole life at stake to help this state. And the job he's done is incredible. Under his leadership, Kentucky has created over 57,000 new jobs. But I helped also. We worked together. Now, he is difficult. I have to say, you know, maybe it cost him the election, but it's okay. Here, look. He's such a pain. When he needs something for Kentucky, like money, like like he wants me to call one of the many manufacturers now that are coming into Kentucky. Could you call the head of some company in Japan, please? I say, Matt, do I have to do it? Please, please. But isn't that really what you wanted, a governor? I mean, really. That's what you want. He's such a pain in the ass, but that's what you want. And the job he's done, one of the best in the country. Not the best. He's been incredible. Matt is strong on crime and tough on illegal immigration. Thank you. He's pro-worker, pro-life, and 100 percent pro-Second Amendment. And by the way, you're going to lose your Second Amendment if you vote in Democrats. You think I'm kidding. I see what they're saying. I watch what they're doing. They're calling me all the time. You will lose your Second Amendment as soon, I'm telling you, as sure as you're standing here. Is anybody sitting? Nobody ever sits. You can sit if you want Now just stand. You know what they say, the fake news? Look, you've been standing, nobody sat. I don't know, is it that exciting? Nobody sat. You know what they say? So you know what they say? They say Trump only got one standing ovation because they stood at the beginning and they never sat down. But they don't say the second part. That's nah, great, great, great spirit. You know why? You love our country. And you see what's happening. We have turned this big monster ship, we have turned it around. And we need so badly. You know, it's like you plant a tree. It takes a little. We have to get those roots to hold. We have the best unemployment numbers in the history of our country. So many things. So many things. The best employment numbers. We have the best of everything. And I think I'm going to count, but I think it's like 118. I told you we have a record stock market today. I think about a hundred — I'm going to have to check it, because, you know, with the fake news, if I'm off by a half a point. If it's, if it's 117 and not 118, even if I go under, they report it. They say he didn't tell the truth. It was really 119, but like a lot, over 100, where we had the highest stock market in our history. Think of that. That's incredible. But Matt Bevan has made record investments in education spending for Kentucky students.
0: He's a great education governor, Bevin.. So
2: important to him. Matt Bevan will defend your Kentucky values. He loves his state from an all-out assault being waged on you from the extreme left. Not good. I can't even imagine how can you vote for somebody from the extreme left? You know, this guy, Bashir, is a major. Lefty, you know that, right? Why are we even waiting? Let's just have a good time. Are you sure we need an election tomorrow, Matt? I don't know. How does Kentucky vote for a person? I'm telling you, he will always vote for Pelosi and Schumer and Shifty Schiff. How about this guy? How about Schiff? He makes up a conversation. He gets up before the United States Congress. He repeats my conversation with the head of the Ukraine, the new president, a good guy, repeats it. I said, I never said that. He made a horrible statement. It was a total lie. And then I actually went and released the actual conversation. And you haven't heard about the whistleblower after that, have you? Because the whistleblower said lots of things that weren't so good, folks. You're going to find out. But these are very dishonest people. Shifty shift. But Matt's running against these people, and we have to send them Assigned because they're dangerous. The radical left's named Andy Bashir, who rejects everything Kentucky stands for. That's who they want to win. <laughs> Bashir has openly pledged to stop the policies of Donald Trump. What are the policies? Take care of our vets, take care of our military. We want jobs, we want companies to stop leaving us. They're not leaving anymore. You see, companies aren't leaving anymore. Have you noticed? Remember years ago, before I ever thought of doing this, I mean, when I said, let's do this, I said to our great now first lady, I said, Melania, let's give it a shot. And then one by one, we were doing good. And what we've done, if you remember, before we ran, companies were leaving Kentucky. Let's just
0: lower it for a moment. I want to add a few things here. There was a commentator on one of the cable shows about an hour ago, maybe an hour and a half ago, who said that Trump remains strong in battleground states where there are a majority white population, significantly majority white population, particularly among those who are older. And then she added "But the majority white population in the country is being reduced by 2% every election cycle. Now, what she's saying there, even though she's a liberal, is the more immigration we can have into the country, the better the chance of the Democrats winning. The larger the majority of the white vote in these various states, the harder it is for the Democrats to win. For them, it's about race. That's why they oppose a wall. That's why they won't secure our borders. That's why they undermine our immigration laws. That's why they call themselves sanctuary cities, sanctuary states. It's not about the people, white, black, brown, in between. It's about their power. It's about their power. And you've probably heard that new poll shows now, released by the New York Times, that the president is highly competitive against both Biden and Elizabeth Warren in the key battleground states, in the six key battleground states. Michigan, Florida, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and uh, Arizona. It's quite unfortunate that Arizona has become a battleground state. It used to be dark red. That North Carolina has become a battleground state. It used to be dark red, but this is what's happened. Florida, now a battleground state, used to be dark red. There's three states that used to be counted on as in Republican columns. Now they're battleground states. And several states are gone now that used to be red states. States like Colorado and Nevada and others. And this is what the Democrats are doing. And this is why the president fights for that wall, fights for immigration control. He knows what he's doing. In addition to all the cultural and societal issues. Now... What it shows is that among registered voters, Trump leads Warren by between three and six percentage points in three out of six of these states. Michigan, Florida, North Carolina. He leads her in Michigan, Florida, North Carolina. Even with her in Pennsylvania and (coughs) Wisconsin, Warren has a two-point lead in Arizona. And Trump leads Sanders by between one and three percentage points in Florida, Arizona, North Carolina, Sanders beats him by one or two points in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. You know, these polls are interesting in that they're unreliable. But with all the negative press Trump is getting, so little reporting on the economy, so little reporting on the radicalism of, the, of these Democrats, that you know damn well that he's doing better in these states than even this poll suggests. All right. Governor Matt Bevin. Go ahead. Top to
2: bottom, run the slate, vote straight Republican, but do your civic duty. Let's get out and vote. Let's send a message to Washington, to the other states, to the United States of America that Kentucky is leading the way and that we support the president of the United States, Donald J. Trump.
0: I should add, folks, in Kentucky, and Kentucky hears us, it's a very close race for governor. You know, he was way behind at one point. It's very tight right now. So you need to vote, Kentucky. Tomorrow's a big, big day in these Commonwealths the Commonwealth of Kentucky, the Commonwealth of Virginia, and the state of Mississippi. Those three states. Go ahead. It's up
2: here. I know a lot of people that work hard, he works smart. When the Democrat arsonist in Washington tried to destroy an innocent man named Brett Kavanaugh, now Justice Brett Kavanaugh, Mitch refused to cave to the left-wing mob. And that's what it was, it was a mob. There has never been a man treated so badly in Washington as Judge Kavanaugh. Previously Judge, now Justice. We got him in, and he's been great, and he will be great. Mitch confirmed two tremendous Supreme Court justices. Mitch helped deliver the largest ever investment in our military and passed VA choice and VA accountability for our We have to take
0: a short veteran. break. We'll be right back.
2: Mark Levin.
0: I want to talk to you about an organization that's actually doing something, something fabulous about the uh, radical progressives dominating our nation's colleges. In only seven years, Charlie Kirk, the man who leads his team at Turning Point USA, and his group have created a conservative grassroots force active on nearly 1,500 campuses with over 250 thousand students now think about that did you even know that I hadn't known that it's amazing quarter of a million and growing and they do it from the bottom up not the top down including training conferences for women african-american and hispanic leaders their annual summit is the largest gathering of young conservatives in the country with over five thousand student leaders in attendance Turning Point USA is training up our own army of campus fighters and they need your support to keep up this great work. Go to markforturningpoint.com. That's markforturningpoint.com. And I love these folks because they play offense. They play to win. So please, go to markforturningpoint.com. Help them take the fight to the campus radicals. You'll be able to see the ways in which you can help. Let George Soros fo- fund the left. We will, our guys. There are others who've already committed to double your efforts, by the way. Double your efforts. Double your support. So please, go to markforturningpoint.com. That's markforturningpoint.com. Back to the president. Go.
2: money from corrupt oligarchs. I say tonight to the media That's Rand Paul job and print his name.
0: I agree with that. Whistleblower so called. Rand's pretty good when he focuses on domestic policy. By the way, Mr. Uh, and I producer, the uh, call screen's not working.
2: Congress, to every Republican in Washington, step up and subpoena Hunter Biden and subpoena the whistleblower. And I say to my colleagues. If Shifty Schiff will not let Hunter Biden come, and if he will not bring the whistleblower for, every Republican in Congress should take a walk and say, this is a farce. (laughs) Wow, that was excellent. Thank you, thank you very much. Great job, he's a warrior. He's a warrior, I've always said it. Also with us tonight are representatives from your state that are fantastic, a couple from outside your state, but we'll welcome them also, right? But these are all- Quickly,
0: E. Frank, Queens, New York, the great WABC, go. E. Frank, quickly, go. All right, E. Frank is busy listening to himself or E. Frank should know better. E. Frank's calling this program for how many years? 16 years, Mr. Producer. Well, we only have 30 seconds left, so it's either listen to dead air from E. Frank or we dance along here for the next hour. We have a great guest at the bottom of the next hour, by the way, just in time, too. So we want you to stick with us. We got a lot of coverage covering the president, covering the news, real news, the constitution if you will. And a great guest, all in hour three. I'll be right back.
3: From the Westwood One
2: Podcast Network.
1: He's here. He's here.
0: I don't really keep track of this. Mr. Producer, you do, right? And that is when the president tweets something I say or a TV appearance or something from my social media, correct? He alerts me. And he kept alerting me yesterday. How many did we have up there? Four, five, six. Six retweets and a couple of individual ones. And we want to thank the president. We're going to continue to defend the office of the presidency, the Constitution, and President Trump from what is taking place by these marauders in the House of Representatives among the Democrats. I don't know how these never-Trumpers can live with themselves when they see what's taking place here. But they can. And you know what's interesting? They are what they accuse the president of narcissistic, and egomaniacal. They have a personal investment in his failure. Nobody even wastes time with Bill Kristol anymore. And the only reason Mitt Romney's name has come up is because of his public conduct as a United States senator. But there are others too. There are others too. And they write books about conservatism, and they write books about liberty, and they write books about small government and all these other things. But they obviously don't mean it. You can criticize the president in areas where you don't believe he's holding the line, just as you could have criticized either Bush or President Reagan or whomever. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about outright sabotage of the president. And taking everything he says and everything he does and trying to twist it into something horrific and negative. That is what is unacceptable to me. And intellectually deceitful. They are no more conservative than the people who they accuse of not being conservative. And I've written many books about this and I've spent a lot of time talking about it. And more than talking about it, I spent eight years of my life working in the Reagan administration. And other years of my life, I ran for office and served on a school board and actually did what I said I would do. Voted against every tax increase, every ridiculous course that they were offering, against the teachers' union contract. Just did what I thought was right. Most of these other people haven't done anything except talk to themselves and to their small circle of friends. But when you look at Adam Schiff and Nadler, you look at these hardcore leftists from in and around Los Angeles and in and around New York City in and around San Francisco and so forth, who do not represent the body politic and who are attempting to unravel the last election and disenfranchise you and use impeachment not as a constitutional mechanism but as a political mechanism for 2020 if you can't stand up to that, you really can't stand up to anything. And this is why I will continue to defend the president. Because he's done nothing to deserve the kind of treatment he's got, Whether it's so-called Russia collusion or obstruction or any of the rest of it. And if you're somebody who really understands history, and you've read history, American history, even recent history... Or if you even read on Freedom of the Press, the last chapter, you know that this president has done nothing compared to past presidents who've abused various departments and agencies and who've abused their offices and have abused interns, among others, while president of the United States. While president of the United States. You know, I haven't commented on this Katie Hall Uh, Excuse me, Katie Hill, who resigned on Friday, who'd been involved in threesomes and apparently took photos of them, or somebody did, and maybe even uh, had an affair with another staffer, legislative director, I believe it was, although she denies it. And the House ethics investigation began, and then she decided to resign, which is the way you get out of a House ethics investigation. And then she accused Republicans of something, soft porno laws or whatever they called, and uh, xenoph- uh, whatever it was, uh, she, she accused uh, reporters on her behalf or opinion writers on her behalf, said, look how the cultures change with millennials and so forth, and will we be able to handle it? Abuse of office and abuse of power. Really, behavior that's unseemly and immoral it's not about millennials versus elderly people. This, this kind of behavior has been immoral for decades, centuries, millennia. Some people do it and they don't get caught. Some people do it and they do get caught. But she made it a man versus woman thing, a Republican versus Democrat thing, a millennial versus... A, it, it, it's ridiculous. She's unethical. Her conduct was unacceptable. And she shouldn't be in the House of Representatives. And she resigned. Good. She makes no statement for anybody or anything. She's 32 years old, old enough to be my daughter. If that were my daughter, I'd be humiliated. Wouldn't you, Mr. Producer? You're elected to the House of Representatives. You claim to be a moderate. You lie. You vote for Pelosi, even though you said you wouldn't. You vote for an impeachment inquiry, even though you said you're a moderate. Just like all these other phony moderates running. But you look at the sleaze that's up there on Capitol Hill, and we barely know about it. You know, now and then we catch wind of it, like uh, these sexual harassment, non-disclosure arrangements where you and I pay for them. Or these various people in the media, Matt Lauer, and what was the other guy? Charlie What's-His-Face? Charlie Rose. and Their names they even lose them. Mark Halpern, he was part of the Joe Scarborough... Circle libs, we'll call them. Even Scarborough, I won't even get into that. I'm sure he's been just swell in the missus. Anyway, so there you have it. We have uh, Mika on the Morning Joe show today. Let's hear what she had to say, because as we know, whatever Mika says is crucially important, enormously profound. Cut eight, go.
5: President Trump was particularly <coughs> active on Twitter over the weekend and the increased frequency is usually a sign that he's concerned about something, nervous about something. Maybe you know what's trying-
0: interesting about this? He's concerned and nervous because he's tweeting. What about people who obsess over his tweets? Like John Mika. Mika. Does that mean they're obsessed and nervous and distracted? Because they're reading them. Go ahead.
5: Distract. In this case, it's clearly the impeachment inquiry. Trump tweeted and retweeted 75 times over the weekend, up until just after midnight last night. Everything from retweets of uh, the likes of Janine Pirro and Mark Levin praising a UFC fighter. Oh,
0: the likes of Janine Pirro and Mark Levin and praising a UFC fighter. Wow. Imagine that. Something must be wrong with Trump. He's a very social animal. I know I've met the man several times. He doesn't sleep a lot. I don't sleep a lot, do I, Mr. Producer? <laughs> I'm sending emails three in the morning, five in the morning. Well, when something, you know, even when I write my books, I have a notepad next to my bed. And if something comes to mind, I write on a note. Over- Otherwise, I have to leave bed and walk to the office downstairs, you know, and write notes to myself. That's how it works, unless, of course, you work at MSNBC and stuff is handed to you, and you're a blithering idiot. But the joke's on them. They're the ones reading them and reporting on them and commenting on them. Go ahead.
5: They also attacked the whistleblower. But if you could speak face-to-face to to these Republicans who are acting as Trump's frontmen, uh, McCarthy, Scalise, and others, especially in terms of... Trump's frontmen.
0: Maybe they disagree with what's being to the president, genius. They're not frontmen. They're rational men. Trump's frontmen. Trump's frontmen from a woman who used to be one of Trump's cheerleaders. Couldn't get enough of Trump. She and the big dummy she sits next to with the bulbous nose. Yes, that dummy, Mr. Deliverance. Go ahead.
5: rot that chips away at our democracy, these tweets intimidating a witness.
0: Oh, that's the rot that chips away at our democracy. Thank goodness now. Now we know what's chipping away at our democracy, the president's tweets. Well, he may tweet, but you're a twit. And so is that guy sitting next to you with the bulbous nose. Joe Twitt. In fact, I think they named Twitter after Joe Twitt. Go ahead.
5: Bullying people, trying to not follow the law, refusing to comply with subpoenas. Oh, shut could-
0: up, you idiot! I mean, come on. I, I, let's see here: bullying people, trying not to follow the law, refusing to comply with witnesses, intimidating witnesses. I tell you, this guy just too much. I can't handle him. I can't handle. And and you know. And, and there he is. And then you got these people fronting for him, the front people. And then the, he's tweeting the likes of Janine Pirro, Mark Levin. And, and who is this idiot? Mika Brzezinski. What the hell has she ever done in her life? Other than sit next to Bozo. And what the hell has he ever done in his life? Failed at radio. Failed as a congressman. Failed as an author. I'll be right back.
1: Mark Levin.
0: I want to play a final audio for you, audio clip. At the bottom of the hour, we have a wonderful guest. An introduction to constitutional law. 100 Supreme Court cases everyone should know. The great professor, dear friend of mine, Georgetown Law School, Randy Barnett. And he speaks in plain English. So this will be fascinating. No the radio host will do this, but we do that here. Katie Turd is a host over at MSLSD. She's a moron. She thinks she's quite smart and can be exceedingly nasty, unlike me, of course. And here she is asking about insurance and pharmaceutical companies. Should they really be making profits? You know, over here at MSNBC, we don't have to make any money. Of course, we're owned by Comcast. They have to make money. Tell me, what's more important, ladies and gentlemen, the pharmaceuticals you need and the insurance to cover your health or cable news? Forget about cable news or cable companies, cable companies, like Comcast, they make profits. You looked at your monthly bill lately? Cut 12, go.
4: When it comes to health care, there are there are people out there that, that may like the current plan they're on. I mean, they may think it's acceptable, the current plan they're on. But do you as a campaign and see... And she's talking
0: to Biden. Do you as a campaign... And by the way... You may think your plan is acceptable, but it may not be because Katie Turd knows, you see. Oh, she's a Biden spokesperson. She's speaking to a Biden spokesperson. Go ahead.
4: The health care system in its current form, uh, the, the, the profit incentives of our health care system as, as, good, as good going forward. Do you think it's the way things should be in this country? First
0: of country? all, she is incoherent, this Katie Turd. The profits and incentives of the healthcare care system as good as good going forward is that the way that things should be in the country where insurance companies go ahead. Sure.
4: Insurance companies make a ton of money off of, off, off of health care, where prescription drug companies make a ton of money off prescription drugs. Do you not see that as a foundational issue? Or, or if you do, are you going to present a plan that will that'll tack, tackle
0: those? Tell me, what is the ton of money that they make? I'm just curious, does she even have a figure? No, she doesn't. She's a news person, which we know she's a fraud. And prescription drug companies, they make a ton of money too. Here's what Katie Turd will not tell you. If you truly cannot afford your drugs that you need, there's a form that you complete. Doctor completes it too. You submit it to the pharmaceutical company and they'll give it to you for free or at some de minimis cost. And they spend billions of dollars doing this. Billions. Billions why don't they tell you this? Why don't they tell you this? Maybe I shouldn't tell you this, but I'm going to tell you this. My father, at the end, when he was uh, taking, when he had uh, cancer rampaging through his body, there was a medicine, fairly new, cutting-edge medicine, that might slow it down and ease the pain. Not, not eliminated. Did I tell the story, Mr. Producer? It was $12,000 a month. And I paid for it. For the first month. He couldn't afford anything like it. And he submitted a form to the drunk company because he's not my dependent. And he submitted the form to the drug company. I'm trying to remember which one it was. Norvi- Norvitis, perhaps one of them. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. <clears throat> and it was a brand new, relatively new, about six months old, cutting-edge drug. This company had spent billions and billions of dollars in test after test after test Government test after government test and coming up with this. And unfortunately, my dad passed away two weeks later. And then we get in the mail the approval from the pharmaceutical company for the drug for my father. And I called him and I told him that I appreciated it, but it was unnecessary at this point. They couldn't have been nicer. These programs exist for many of you out there. The government is not as beneficent, and tolerant, and kind as the private sector. It's just not. If you've dealt with the government, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's not like we don't know what the government does with the Veterans Administration. And while there are a percentage of vets who like their coverage, my father did. There's a larger percentage who don't. It just depends on the doctor, the hospital, and so forth. And the president has put some choice into that program, which is very, very important. But the left fought that too. So the profit motive. But for the profit motive, that drug wouldn't exist. But for that pharmaceutical company, you'd have nowhere to submit those forms to get that drug at no cost or a de minimis cost, depending on your income. Most people cannot afford $12,000 a month, and they know it. But there's some people who can, and they're the ones that they rely on <clears throat> Excuse me. to help support what has been their enormous R&D investment in capital research. That drug did not exist overseas because it's all nationalized over there. It's all controlled by the government. It's easy for people to sit there like Katie Turd who knows nothing about this subject and to go off about profit, 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 and profit. They prefer taxes, 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 and regulations, regulations, and regulations. I'll be right back.
1: People talk about the Tea Party. We are the Tea Party. Call in now, 877-381-3811. Professor Randy Barnett, how are you, sir? It's so great to be
0: on
3: your show again.
0: Well, it's always my pleasure. A great professor, Georgetown University Law School. Tough school to get into, isn't it?
3: It is, but uh, it's worth it when you get there.
0: When you get there, well, if you get a professor like you, you've written a book with Josh Blackman called An Introduction to Constitutional Law, Supreme Court Cases Everyone Should Know. You've written it in plain English. Tell us about the book generally, then I have a few questions.
3: Yeah, it's a multimedia platform, actually. It is an introductory book that covers the 100 Supreme Court cases that everyone should know, that all constitutional lawyers do know. Um, It does so in a very accessible way, and the book is accompanied by 63 videos that run about 11 hours if you watch them all at the same time, uh, which illustrate each one of these cases, uh, puts them in historical context, and uh, has a very fascinating transcripts from oral arguments, transcripts from the justices handing down their own opinions, photographs, charts, graphs. Uh, We really make Constitutional Law come alive. It's a book intended for law students, but also for the general public, for college students, and for high schoolers, it would make a great homeschool course. The book and videos would make a fantastic homeschool course.
0: I think everybody in my audience, you know, we're all focused on the Constitution on this program. Now,
3: and right, right yeah. What separates this book from my previous books and, and, and to some extent from your books, Mark, Mark is that I, we were talking about what the Constitution means. This is a book about what the, what the Supreme Court has said yes. the Constitution means, and that's a different thing, as you know.
0: Yes. Sometimes good, sometimes bad.
3: Right. Now, and there's, a lot of, there's a lot of bad. Yes, yeah, yeah.
0: a lot of bad. You know, let's start at the beginning here, just to give people a flavor. Chisholm versus Georgia, 1793. What was that all
3: about? Chisholm versus Georgia uh, was a case that involved whether an individual citizen could sue a state in federal court uh, if it was a citizen of another state. Uh, the Constitution, really, the text of the Constitution seemed very much to authorize that, and the Supreme Court held. Uh, In a four to one vote, there were five justices on the Supreme Court then that the the, uh, citizen did have a right because the individual citizen makes up the sovereign and the government is their servants and you have a right as the sovereign to sue your servants in government. They, They don't have any immunity from that. Um, that ended up being reversed by the 11th Amendment. So, one reason why people don't study Chisholm is because the 11th Amendment reversed it. But we think it's a very important case to understand the concept of individual popular sovereignty, which, as you know, Mark, that was what my last book, Our Republican Constitution, was about popular sovereignty based on individual rights, not based on collective majoritarian governance.
0: And that was quite remarkable, uh, was I mean. Uh, it was the thought, it was the mindset of the American people at the time, but quite remarkable for a country, wasn't it?
3: Absolutely. And James Wilson, our most forgotten founder, was yeah. the justices of the Supreme Court, and he wrote a tremendous opinion in that case, as did John Jay, one of the co-authors of the Federalist Papers.
0: hmm Marbury versus Madison. Everyone says this is the big one.
3: Well, we think it's overrated in so far as... By the way, so do think, I, but go ahead. We, yes. we, think, we think judicial review was, was well-established uh, as a norm at the time the Constitution was written that everyone in Philadelphia took it for granted that p- judges would have a power to follow the higher law of the Constitution as opposed to a lower law of a, of a, of a mere statute. Um, and so, John Marshall, that's the first case in which they actually invalidated the law, but it's not the first case where the Supreme Court had endorsed uh, judicial review, and we make that, that we make that clear. In fact, one of the things I want to emphasize, Mark, is we tell the story of constitutional law as a story, starting at the founding with Chisholm, with Marbury, with McCulloch, with Gibbons, and then we bring us forward to the, to the present because we think all of constitutional law is a big story that's best understood as a story made up of 100 individual stories, which are our 100 Supreme Court cases.
0: So you're not really studying case by case, even though you are, but you're, you're, there's a common thread. You're pulling them all together here.
3: Yes, it really is a narrative. We have basically always had two contending or three contending positions on the Supreme Court, usually two. There's a left side of the court and a right side of the court. That has changed over the years as to what that represents. But there's always been a narrative struggle between one side of the court and the other, um, and we tell the story of that struggle.
0: Would you have been a Federalist or an Anti-Federalist, do you think? Boy, that's just such a good
3: question. I I refuse to answer on the
0: (laughs) I go both ways, too. I do, too.
3: It depends on what day it is.
0: Yeah. All right. Tell everybody what McCulloch versus Maryland is. 1819.
3: Yeah, McCulloch versus Maryland is the is is a case a Marshall case the, upon which the New Dealers based their capacious reading of federal powers. We think uh, there is some there is some loose language in that case that invited that kind of interpretation. But we think that case has been. Way over, way exaggerated. The power that John Marshall recognized in that case has been very, much too much exaggerated. He, they basically say that after McCulloch, it's up to Congress to decide whether something is convenient uh, in in passing a law. And even though there is that word in the opinion, Marshall himself denied that he had um, had issued such a extre- uh, such an extreme opinion when he defended himself. As we'd explained, he defended himself in anonymous essays published uh, in Virginia newspapers. In other words, he published op-eds under a pseudonym to defend his ruling in McCulloch versus Maryland, one of the many, many interesting facts you'll learn about in our book.
0: Are you mostly a fan of, uh, of, of his marshals or not?
3: I am not. I you am you not. I'm not either. You, we're the two. He is, he is not my least favorite justice, I would say. Of the major justices, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. is my least favorite justice. And tell everybody why. A- uh, well, you know, the, 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 the justice that wrote Buck V. Bell, which said three generations of idiots are enough and therefore authorized uh, the compulsory sterilization of so-called feeble-minded mm-hmm. people, which in the case of Carrie Buck uh, was not at all feeble-minded. In fact, she probably been – she had been raped by uh, her parent um, before she was institutionalized. Uh, this guy cannot be anybody – should not be anybody's hero. Uh, but he has a lot, le- he has a lot more uh, going against him, even though he's quite revered. And we do tell the story of, of Carrie Buck in, our, in, a, in, the, in the video about that. And we, we actually present pictures of her. Um, and we talk about the lineage that is supposedly three generations. It was not three generations. This was a test case that was sent up to the court because state courts were resisting uh, st- compelled sterilization, uh, as Judge Jeff Sutton has noted in his book. Uh, and uh, and they needed to get a test case to the Supreme Court because if the Supreme Court upheld it, they figured the states would fall in line. And guess what, Mark? It, it worked. They did fall uh-huh. in
0: line. Your next case here, I want to hit these five because they're important. Gibbons versus Ogden, eighteen twenty-four.
3: Right. Well, Gibbons versus Ogden is about whether the commerce power includes the power of navigation which it clearly did. The original meaning of the the Commerce Clause did include navigation. Navigation was the principal means of moving things from one place to another, which is what commerce is all about. Um, So Marshall was correct in this. It's a John Marshall opinion. He was correct in his outcome. But then he threw in some language about uh, uh, among the several states, which is the Commerce Clause says commerce shall have power to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states Mm -hmm. and with Indian tribes. And among the, what well, the question is, what does among the several states mean? Well, we think it means, we think it obviously means between states. Among mm-hmm. is the plural of between when you're talking in multiple states. Well, he said uh, uh, among the means means amidst the states or intermingled with the states. And in other words, he gave another a case in which he uses loose language that we don't think he meant to be very capacious, as capacious as it turned out to be. It was the New Dealers who seized on all of these martial court opinions to justify their expansion of federal power uh, and justify themselves as originalists. For them, originalism was John Marshall opinions, and then they overread all of these opinions.
0: And isn't that the problem today? Even, even when we hear the left talk about the Constitution, when they're done explaining that the Constitution was written by a bunch of slaveholders, then then they wave it around in order to defend their their, their support for a centralized program or centralized government. Isn't that the case?
3: It, it absolutely is it's infuriating when you see You know, i I just you know I just heard Nancy Pelosi the other day talking he had just, you know we're up here. it's a very serious matter this impeachment thing, but we're here to protect the integrity of the presidency and the Constitution and uh, the constitution. I mean the Constitution is just if if you have a living constitutionalist view that it means whatever essentially we want it to mean today because it has to evolve and change for changing times, and judges get to decide what that is. Then, the, then a commitment to the Constitution is simply a commitment to what you want to happen. And yeah, that's not yeah. a commitment to anything. Now,
0: 1833, Barron versus Baltimore. What was that case about?
3: Barron versus Baltimore is the case that most people don't realize was decided. When pe- people think today you have a First Amendment challenge against state governments, well, the First Amendment was not meant to apply to state governments. And, in, like fa- in fact, Professor,
0: were any of the Bill of Rights?
3: No. None of the first eight amendments were intended to uh, apply to the federal government. And in fact, Mark, as we know, uh, and recent scholarship has shown, uh, the, the, the first ten amendments weren't called the Bill of Rights at, at the founding. Mm-hmm. They didn't start to be called the Bill of Rights usually in the, into the 20th century. They were just called the amendments. Mm-hmm. Um, and they applied to the federal government. It was the 14th Amendment that applies fundamental rights to the states. And so you can't understand what the scope of the limitation on state power is without studying the 14th Amendment um, and the Supreme Court has held that the First Amendment applies to the uh, to the states via the Fourteenth Amendment. Mm-hmm. We think that doctrine incorporation is not exactly the right way to go about it, but the bottom line is correct. Now, the right to, for this, uh, the Fourteenth Amendment does protect the freedom of speech, press, assembly, and the rest, as well as the right to keep and bear arms.
0: This is a, maybe it's not even a fair question. Of all the decisions that you go over these hundred <laughs> decisions, which is the worst? <sighs>
3: Well, Plessy versus Ferguson and Dred Scott, I mm-hmm. would say, and, and Buckley-Bell. Uh, take your pick. There's three mm-hmm. of the worst ones. Dred Scott, famously the worst one. Plessy versus Ferguson upholding 100 years of Jim Crow in the name of judicial restraint. Uh, they refused to second-guess the Louisiana legislature when they passed this segregated uh, train uh, statute. Um, and uh, Buckley-Bell, they're, they're pretty awful. But there are other awful ones, too. We could put Karamatsu in there, the internment yep. of Japanese citizens. Uh, I, I, I can't focus in on one, but Dred Scott is, I think, by consensus, uh, uh, probably the worst.
0: The reason I ask you that is, you know, sometimes the court is held up, you know, as something that's... Or the people in the court are held up as, as people who are almost not human, that they're so wise in what they do and so forth. You support, and you make the case for judicial review, judicial review predates uh, Marbury. That said, that doesn't mean these people aren't of flesh and blood and can't be terribly wrong,
3: correct? I, I think the court has been wrong, at least as often as it has been right. And 100 Supreme Court cases everyone should know explains why so many of those 100 cases are, are actually questionable. We, we don't take a heavy-handed editorial view in this bookmark. Mm-hmm. We try to report it as it is, and we give both sides. We give the majorities. We give the dissents. We let the reader decide for himself what they like or don't like. But uh, it becomes pretty clear that the Supreme Court has played a mixed role. Uh, They've done some very good things and they've done some very bad things, mostly by sitting on their hands while bad things happen around them.
0: I don't want to lose you yet. I want to do a commercial. Can you hang in there for a couple of minutes? Absolutely, Mark. Absolutely. This just just fascinates me, and I think it, it fascinates my audience, too. You know, on the campaign trail, President Trump, promised to renegotiate NAFTA to deliver better for American workers, businesses, and consumers, and he kept that promise. The U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade agreement, USMCA, negotiated by the Trump administration, will replace NAFTA. When NAFTA was signed 26 years ago, no one could have predicted the explosion of innovation and cutting-edge advancements in medicine, agriculture, and technology. Well, that's why the president wanted to update it. President Trump's new trade agreement puts in place strong protections for American innovators and their intellectual property responsible for the medical innovations we take for granted. But Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats want to rewrite the deal and strip out its intellectual property rights. You know, we've got to go after Big Farm and so forth. But without strong protection of U.S. intellectual property rights, foreign freeloaders will continue to take advantage of our innovation. And the investments needed to create new treatments for chronic and deadly diseases will be at risk Protecting intellectual property protects the jobs of Americans who are working to create a better health future, and it protects the incentive to innovate and take risks. Republicans should stand firm and make sure this free trade deal keeps America's interests at the forefront. Get the facts. Go to truehealthcarefacts.com, truehealthcarefacts.com, that's truehealthcarefacts.com. We'll be right back.
1: Mark Levin.
0: Hillsdale College, you know, there are four purposes of education at Hillsdale. Learning, character, faith, and freedom. For 175 years, Hillsdale has been committed to these four pillars of its mission. Other colleges started off with good intentions, but many of them have lost their way. Hillsdale maintains an unwavering commitment to learning, character, faith, and freedom. And I've known their great president there, Dr. Larry Arnn, for decades. And he says, quote, Learning is difficult and takes more than talent. It takes hard work, which requires character. Freedom is essential for learning, but it is fragile, constantly under threat. So its principles must be studied by all for the sake of its defense. At Hillsdale, faith and learning are integrated toward God because he's the first authority, unquote. Hillsdale is a rigorous, true liberal arts curriculum, and all students learn the basics of the U.S. Constitution, whether they major in biology, business, economics, or any of the dozens of other areas of study. All students learn what it means to be good citizens and why it's necessary to fight for freedom. Hillsdale College, pursuing truth and defending liberty since 1844. Learn more at levinforhillsdale.com. Don't forget, people in Virginia, you got to vote tomorrow. Polls open at 6 a.m. and they close at 7 p.m. People in Kentucky, you're voting too. You have a great governor, Matt Bevan. Folks in Mississippi, you're voting. You got to get out and vote. But I live in Virginia and I don't want to see this state screwed up more than it is. So all you Levinites and conservatives... Republicans, let's go. Tomorrow's the day. All right, Professor Randy Barnett, this is a fantastic book. It's called An Introduction to Constitutional Law, Supreme Court Cases Everyone Should Know. It's got multimedia platforms here, but I'm looking at the book. It's linked to a Mark Levin Show Facebook, Mark Levin Show Twitter. You can get it directly at Amazon.com. And uh, I wanted to ask you a question about this. A book like this. A book like this—do you find uh, that people in the media are even interested in this, Randy?
3: Um, not really. It's not—it's not a—it's not a, uh, a hot-button issue book like my last book, *Our Republican Constitution*, got a lot of media play because it was about what was going on in the 2016 election, in part, and the Republican Party, etc. This one is. Uh, a little more like uh, – <laughs> I was going to say a little more like your books, but your books always make the bestseller lick, list, Mark. But you know, your books are pretty cerebral, um, and this book is in the spirit of your book. It's in the spirit of Hillsdale College. Uh, can I say one more thing about the videos, though, Mark? Absolutely. I think every, everybody needs to know that when they buy a copy of this book from Amazon or from any of the other links, um, they get a code on the inside cover good for access to mm-hmm. the our 63 videos that, as I say, takes up to 11 hours – uh, to watch if you watch them all they're ten to they're five to fifteen minute videos we spent Josh and I spent two years writing the scripts, filming these videos, um editing them. Josh did all the the storyboarding and the multimedia stuff um and uh, it cost over a hundred thousand dollars to make these videos so you get a you get a lot of bang for your buck when you buy this book.
0: I'm telling you this is a fantastic project you've undertaken here. All you folks out there who are concerned about your kids in school and colleges and universities. I'm telling you, this is a perfect gift. It is great, not just for homeschoolers and so forth, but for anybody who has kids in school. And it's great for people like me. You know, I forgot half this stuff. I'll be honest with you, Professor. I have to go back and look it up all the time because I don't live with it every day like you do. So I want to strongly encourage you folks. An Introduction to Constitutional Law, Supreme Court Cases Everyone Should Know. If you like my books, you're going to like this book too by Randy Barnett, Josh Blackman, It's very accessible. It's very understandable. And that's why they've done these videos as well. Randy, this is a terrific book. I want to salute you.
3: Thank you very much. The the, the subtitle is 100 Supreme Court Cases. 100. What did I say? Just Supreme Court Cases. That's probably what they handed you.
0: Uh, Yeah. Uh, No, 100 Supreme Court Cases. Everyone should know. And they're all fascinating. Randy Barnett, thank you, my friend. And make sure you vote tomorrow. Thank you, Mark. All right. God bless you. Ladies and gentlemen, we salute all our heroes out there, and I want to thank you. And one more time, please vote in Virginia, Kentucky, Mississippi. But Virginia, let's go. I'll see you tomorrow. God bless.
3: From the Westwood
5: One Podcast Network.